you are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Would you stand with me, church, as we honor God with the reading of his word? Scripture reading today will be from Acts 26, 8 through 29. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long. I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. And all God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Yeah, welcome everybody once more today, those of us uh, who are in the room, in our overflow uh, room. Uh, glad you're here. My name is Morgan, the lead pastor. Uh, what is you have a part to play? I'm sure you're asking that. Well, for the next eight weeks, we're just asking this question. What would your life look like if you really believed what we sang a moment ago, that you were, that you are a difference maker? What would it look like if you believed that you had a part to play for good in the world? 
And so starting next week, for the next six weeks, week by week, we'll be taking a look at those six topics that you saw in the video a moment ago. We'll see how we might be able to speak to those. But the real way that that big question gets answered will be in the context of our community groups, where we're asking our groups to each form a unique response to one of those six issues and see what might happen. Then we'll conclude it all on the eighth week with a big celebration that final week. We'll look and see what our our groups have done across the city during that time and of our fall festival that night and have some unique things like that song you, you heard happening each week in our service. Our kids and our teens will be tracking along in their environments and you'll see some surprises pop up in here, pop up out there over the next two months. So it should be a great time. Glad to have you along for the journey. But today as we kick this whole thing off, I want to hone in on this overarching question that's at the core and the heart of what we're doing today. It's this question. What could help you believe that God had created you to be a difference maker? What could help you believe that God had created you to be that? Because I think we doubt that about ourselves in life. I think that that truth, that God has made us to be a difference maker. Uh, Ephesians says, God's made us for good works. I think that truth gets buried under pressure, under bills, under kids, under relationship, under sickness, under heartbreak in the news. But, but I believe everyone in here today hearing this, you are that today. No matter how old or young or wealthy or poor. So what can help us believe that and move into that truth? Well, someone that you may know named the Apostle Paul can help us with that. We read a little bit about him a moment ago. Uh, you may know he was a, a first century church planner. He wrote a lot of the letters that make up now what we call the New Testament. But what gave Paul his street cred back in the day was stuff like this that that you you hear about in this eyewitness account of this trial he was on. It was written by a Greek doctor named Luke. And of course, Paul at this point in his life was becoming the difference maker in the Roman empire. He was the major Instagram influencer of his day. If he had had a Twitter handle back then, it might've been this like at Jesus junkie, AD 33, Maybe at Roman Revolutionary, maybe. Uh, if, his, if he had tweeted his first tweet, may have been something like this. Hey, an apostle is tagging him. Got that call. No more Saul. Now I'm, I'm Paul. And the point is, the point is Paul is changing the world. And here in Acts 26, he's in the trial of his life. And he's standing, in, standing before someone remarkable. <clears throat> Paul has been arrested for preaching about Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. And he's been brought to give his defense before someone named Agrippa, who was king over Judea in the early 40s AD. And the reason this moment in time is so important is this. Agrippa's great-grandfather was someone named King Herod, who had tried to kill Jesus Christ as a baby. King Agrippa's grandfather, also known as Herod, was the one who had beheaded John the Baptist King Agrippa's father was the one who had presided over the first Christian martyr's death, someone named Stephen back in Acts 6. And now Paul is standing before the fourth generation of a family that's been trying to use its influence to silence the Christian message, the redemptive plan of God in the world. In a way, Agrippa and Paul had been destined to meet, though neither one of them could have seen it coming. 
But when they meet, though, Paul doesn't back down. How? How did Paul, how did he come to play his part right here, leverage all his talents, his influence, uh, his education to become the difference maker he was in this moment? Well, it's because, you have to see this, it's because Paul has answered for himself already three questions that he asks of us, in a way, in this passage right here. There are three questions in this passage that Paul asks that point us to how Paul could become a difference maker for Jesus. And I think if we can answer these same three questions like Paul answered them, we might just begin to see in a greater way how we can be difference makers in our moments, in our lives, our families our cities. So what are those three difference-making questions? Well, Paul, we're going to see, has a question for the world. He has a question for Jesus. And finally, Paul has a question for you. It's a question for the world, for Jesus, and for you and me today. Let's see what they are in turn. First, Paul asked the world this first difference-making question. He asked, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Now, the reason he's asking this question of everyone in the room is because of this. Everyone in that room knew that Jesus of Nazareth had been a real person, that Jesus had really lived and really died. There was no, one's, uh, there was no dispute in anyone's mind that he had really lived. And thankfully today, thankfully today, honest historians don't dispute this either. Those that do, for the most part, are fringy people with you know, clicks they want to get or axes they got to grind or books they want to sell or something. But they're not respected anymore, thankfully. And the reason people don't dispute this anymore is not even just because of the Gospels, which are helpful and reputable, but really it's because of the book of Acts and stuff you see right here, these details that Luke gives you throughout the book. So the life and the death of Jesus at this moment, Acts 26, not in dispute. But what was in dispute was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That was Paul's claim. That was what was in dispute, but not for the reason that you might think. Because Paul, in asking this question to kick off his defense before Agrippa, he's just re-asking the same question Paul had been asking. Four chapters earlier, he set off a firestorm of controversy, he references in the speech, by preaching that God had raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul did this in front of two groups simultaneously. The first group was a group of religious leaders, Jewish leaders, called the Sadducees, who did not believe in the supernatural or that the resurrection from the dead was a possibility. The other group, Paul had preached this message in front of, were called the Pharisees, who believed there would be a resurrection at the end of history, but they did not believe that God would, could raise one man right now in the middle of history. But Paul is now here, he's asking the right question. Paul is asking the obvious question, the question no one was stopping to ask in the middle of all their petty theological squabbling. Here's his question. He's asking, if God is really God, y'all, I added that part, if he really is, come on, all-powerful, if he really did, think about it, create the cosmos by his own power, why would it be incredible that God would raise Jesus from the dead? I mean, why would it be incredible if there's a supernatural God that he does supernatural, incredible things? It may be unlikely, but it's not illogical. It's actually the very definition of who God is. It's like asking this. Here's how the logic goes. Come on, NFL fans. Here's the kickoff today, right? Why would it th- anyone think it's incredible 
that Tom Brady throws touchdown passes. That's just what Tom Brady does. No Patriot fans here. That's all right. He's throwing them at Antonio Brown now, apparently. All right. Why would anyone think it incredible that mm, LeBron James can dunk a basketball? That's what he does. Why would anyone think it incredible that Dallas Cowboys fans always think this year is their year? I mean, that's just, well, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I had one guy at first service, like fake. He got up and halfway walked out. He was so offended, but I got you back now. So um, I'm actually a Cowboys fan, but that's just what we do, right? This year is our year, but that's what we do. Someone named uh, Professor Joshua Chamberlain, you may know the name. He grew up thinking about becoming a minister, but Joshua Chamberlain instead became a college professor. He, he taught rhetoric, uh, studied theology. He was definitely not a soldier when duty called, and he enlisted in the Union Army to help fight to abolish slavery in the Civil War. But he climbed the ranks to become a colonel, and then one day, first professor, now Colonel Chamberlain, came face to face with destiny. On July 2, 1863, Chamberlain and 300 soldiers were all that stood between the Confederate army and certain defeat. Uh, Two different Confederate regiments charged and charged and charged again five times in all, but Chamberlain and his men held their ground. By the last charge, there were only 80 Union soldiers left, and Chamberlain himself was knocked down by a bullet that miraculously only hit his belt buckle. It fell harmlessly to the ground. When he was informed there were no reinforcements to come and his men were down to one round of ammunition apiece, he knew he had to do something. His lookout told him that the Confederates were forming a final charge against him to finish them off. So, of course, the logical thing to do would be just to surrender. Hope for the best that way. But Chamberlain did just the opposite. And he made a decision that single-handedly changed the war and saved the Union. In full view of the enemy, he climbed up on top of the barricade that separated the two sides, and he yelled, charge, and all his men started running at the enemy, which vastly outnumbered them. Of course, they caught the Confederates totally off guard, and as what ranks in one of the most improbable military victories ever, 80 Union soldiers captured 4,000 Confederates in five minutes flat. Historians believe that if Chamberlain hadn't charged, the Confederates would have gained the high ground. And if they had, the South, not the North, would have won that battle, which is now called the Battle of Gettysburg, which is the battle that turned the tide of the Civil War. And Chamberlain, who was a committed Christian, a deep thinker, you should read his speeches, by the way, he was given the Medal of Honor for this. And he said later, quote, I had deep within me the inability to do nothing. I knew I may die But I also knew that I would not die with a bullet in my back. Now think about it. He could have thought this. What difference does my choice make here? Why not give up? Why not surrender when the odds are overwhelmingly, understandably against me? He had only 80 men versus 4,000. Some of you, you feel like this in your everyday life. You feel overwhelmed. You think, what difference can I make? You feel like, man, it's like me versus 4,000 emails. <laughs> I got to answer every day. Or the 4,000 miles, you got to schlep your kids around from practice to practice and rehearsals. Or the 4,000 dishes, you versus them, you know, from your roommates. Or the 4,000 kids you feel like you've had with that person that you said yes to at that altar all those years ago. You know, like, why not just give up if the odds are against you? Well, Joshua Chamberlain didn't give up. Because Joshua Chamberlain had an understanding, like Paul did, of some good theology, which is that in the kingdom of God, small things are really big things. 
Every choice matters. Little choices are big choices. And Chamberlain's choice, and what looked like this small moment in a great big war, actually changed the whole thing. Think about it. You and I are now living in the future that he helped to create. Why would you consider it incredible that God raises the dead, intervenes in history, allows a, a, a bullet to ricochet off a belt buckle, does something great perhaps in your life over the next eight weeks, maybe does something great in your community group, maybe uses this church, Mosaic Church, to do something great in this city during our lifetime. Why would that be incredible to think? Come on, to put it in the words of the, the Geico commercial. When you're God, incredible is just what you do. It's just what you do, right? Paul asks this first difference-making question of the world. The second, second difference-making question he asks here in the passage is of Jesus Christ himself. Look, he asks this question. He asks, secondly, now, who are you, Lord? Now, Paul asks this question, the second question, when he's recounting his conversion story to King Agrippa. Paul was knocked down, not off his horse. Sorry, by the way, medieval painters, Caravaggio, if you know that painting. But uh, he was never knocked off his horse. He was knocked to the ground by a blazing light. And by the way, if you doubt Paul's story, on one hand, all right, you can do that. On the other hand, you're left with trying to figure out how Paul came to be who Paul was. How literally in one moment he's on his way to destroy the Christian faith. Literally the next moment he's on the way to becoming its greatest advocate and spokesperson. What happened? Well, what had happened was Paul asked this question to Jesus, of Jesus. Who are you? And he got this answer. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. So Jesus says, I am, here's the word, appointing you. The Greek word is prokarizo. It means to take into one's own hands and form for one's use. I wonder what other Bible story we could think of where God takes a person, forms them with his own hands, sends them out, commissions them, to go into the world. Oh, that's right. It was the first human. God created Adam. See, Jesus is saying, just like I did with Adam, Paul, I am shaping you, appointing you. I am defining you. See, Jesus is saying, I am the only one, Paul, who can define you. You can't define you. Only I can. Jesus says, I'm defining you. And second, he says, I am sending you. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, I'm going to rescue you. I am sending you. To the Gentiles, oh, and you'll notice Jesus never asks permission from Paul to choose him, appoint him, shape him, send him. But Paul just says, yes. It's like we sang, yes, Lord. He becomes a difference maker for good in the world, not because Paul looks on the inside summons up some invented personal identity. No, he says, he looks outward to God and he says, God, I am who you say I am. I will go where you send me. I'll take the next step in your plan for me, God, though I don't know the future. About 150 years ago, a man by the name of George MacDonald, he wrote a children's book called The Princess and the Goblin. 
And the protagonist is a little girl, eight-year-old girl named Irene, who has found an attic in her house, and she's discovered that she has a fairy grandmother who lives there. And when Irene goes to look for her in the attic, she's not always there, so her fairy grandmother gives her a ring with a thread tied to it, leading to a little ball of thread that she herself will keep. Irene says, well, I can't see the thread, grandmother. No, the grandmother says the thread is too fine for you to see. You can only feel it. Irene tests the thread. She feels it. Now listen, says the grandmother. If ever you find yourself in any danger, you must first take off your ring and put it under the pillow of your bed. Then you must lay your forefinger upon the thread and follow the thread wherever it leads you. Oh, how delightful, Irene says. It will lead me to you, grandmother, I know. Yes, says the grandmother. But remember, it may seem to you a very roundabout way indeed, and you must not doubt the thread. Of one thing you may be sure, that while you hold it, I hold it too. Story goes on a few days later. Irene's in bed, and because it's a fairy tale, of course, goblins get into her house, and she's frightened, but she remembers to take off the ring, and she puts it under her pillow, and she finds the thread, and she begins to follow the thread, but to her dismay, it leads her out through the house, past these goblins, and into a whole cave of goblins, and inside the cave, the thread leads her up to this great heap of stones, and it looks like a dead end. The thought struck her that maybe she could try to go backwards, follow the thread backwards, But when she tried to go back, the thread disappeared. It vanished from her touch. And the thread only worked forward. But forward led her into what looked like a dead end, this great heap of stones. So she began to tear uh, down this wall of stones in front of her. She begins to hear a voice. It's the voice of her friend, Curdie. She rescued him. He's been trapped in this goblin's cave. And she removes enough rocks to make an opening But Irene keeps going back further, deeper into the cave. And Curdy objects. He says, where are you going? That's not the way out. That's where I couldn't get out. Irene says, I know that. But this is the way my thread goes. And I must follow it. And the thread, in the end, proves trustworthy. It leads her to her grandmother. Because the one who held the thread was trustworthy. And today I want you to hear that the heart of God is trustworthy for you to follow. When God calls you, he asks you to go forward into something. You can trust his heart for you. It may seem like a dead end, like a great wall of stones. Irene's hands got bloodied as she's doing this. Oh, but listen. Oh, your breakthrough, hear me, is only forward. It isn't backward. Oh, don't go back. The way to break through is forward. You can trust the heart of God. Paul asked this first question of the world. Why is it incredible? God does something supernatural. The answer is, oh, it's not. It's only for us it's incredible, not for him. Paul asks a second question of Jesus. Who are you? He's the one who shapes us and sends us. But Paul asks a third, and here's the word, a final crucial question. Not to the world, not of Jesus, but to us as individuals. We see it here at the end of Paul's defense when he turns, oh, and he hones in on King Agrippa. And he says, do you believe? Do you believe? And now, oh, just one moment in this courtroom, all eyes swing to the king. What will King Agrippa say? Well, Agrippa was familiar with the Jewish prophets. He had heard the Jewish prophets' message. If you do a little history research, you see he had this affinity, sort of weird, for the Jewish people. But maybe, maybe, like you, 
Agrippa is like you today. Maybe uh, you've come to a church, you've heard the Christian message, you've heard this message of a Messiah like Agrippa had, but maybe, like Agrippa, you have never been asked, point blank, what Agrippa was asked, do you believe? Do you believe? What will Agrippa say to the question? Agrippa, oh, you got to love him here. He's a modern person like ourselves, man. He's skeptical. He's educated. He's polytheistic, pluralistic, lots of gods. And he plays the part of the skeptic right here. Look at his response. Verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Sort of condescending, you know. The point is, Agrippa is saying, almost, almost. Hey, Paul, I'm almost there. But I don't know if I can really follow where you've gone. Become what you become. Here's Paul's conclusion, verse 29. I love this. Short time or long. Man, the guy's got some guts, doesn't he? I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Oh, Paul says, I want everyone to become what I've become. And come on, what has Paul become here? A difference maker for Jesus. Become that. Now consider, consider who's here. Hearing this moment in the courtroom, you've got three people. King Agrippa, he's king of Judea. He appears to have all the power in the world. You've got someone named Bernice sitting next to him. He's both Agrippa's sister and Agrippa's mistress. That's how they rolled. You've got Festus, the Roman governor directly responsible for Paul's case, who history records he's basically a decent person. Oh, but he gives in to political pressure and he keeps Paul in prison to appease the Jews. He won't release Paul. And you've got these three powerful people. You've got a king, a strong woman from the royal family. You've got a governor. And yet the freest person in the whole courtroom is the one in chains. The one in chains in the middle. Why, why, why? Because Paul had already answered the question. We all must answer to begin to become a difference maker in the world. To the question, do you believe? Paul answers, yes. Yes, Jesus, I believe that you came for me. You came for me. You are the son of God who lived for me who died for me, who was resurrected for me, and that you have the power, Jesus, to change my life and enable me to become more than I could ever become on my own. Paul says yes to that. But Agrippa, Festus, Bernice, they all say no. And the irony of it all is the ones who say no here, though they appear so powerful in their moment, though they appear so mighty now today, their influence has long since vanished. Although they seem so important in their day, they have all been reduced to a mere footnote in the life of the Apostle Paul, who continues to be a difference maker, who has had a voice down through the ages, through the centuries, through the generations, even today, all because he said yes to the difference maker, Jesus of Nazareth. Here, do you believe today? Will you follow Jesus? You say, well, what, what would that look like? I don't know, what would that look like? Well, here's an answer. Jesus himself actually gives you a definition of what it means to become a Christian. Right to Paul, the Apostle Paul in his testimony. To become a Christian. We read it earlier. It means to this. Jesus says. Is to have your eyes opened. Have your eyes opened. Let's go through that list. Have your eyes opened. To be turned from darkness to light. It means without Jesus. You're still 
spiritual darkness, to be turned from the power of Satan to God, power of God, to receive forgiveness. That's a release of the penalty of your sins, to receive a place that means a status of safety among God's people. Most of all, it means to have faith and trust in Jesus. See, to begin to be a difference maker today means you say yes to the question that Agrippa couldn't answer. I want you to hear me. No matter your gifts today, I don't know who a lot of you are, your gifts, your talents, your education, your money, your wealth, your status, who you are, where you've been, you will never become all you were meant to become until you first and foremost have an intimate relationship, connection with your creator, with your designer, the one who loves you and has made you to be more than you could ever imagine. But you'll never come into that until you find within yourself, by the grace of God, the answer, yes, to this question. Do you believe? Dr. King put it like this, Martin Luther King Jr. He put it like this. Yes, it's primarily about taking a stand against racism, but his words here in this moment are worth repeating because they're also true about anyone deciding for anything fundamentally true and right in the face of opposition. He put it like this, quote, courage is an inner resolution to go forward despite obstacles. Cowardice is submissive surrender to circumstances. Courage breeds creativity. Cowardice represses fear and is mastered by it. Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when we must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but one must take because it is right. Agrippa played it safe. Bernice, she played it popular. Festus played it politic. Oh, but Paul played his part because it was right. What about you? What about me today? Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.